0: I said, I don't understand why my clients are now telling me often apropos of nothing and often after the court proceedings. So there was no gain for them that they were telling me that they'd been sexually abused when they were young. And I'm not asking them this question. And he said, it's because they know that I won't shame them. And I found that incredibly powerful. And it's incredible, although it sounds bad to say it's a burden. But, you know, but I don't, I don't like to hear that my clients have been sexually abused or had terrible childhoods, but it's also a privilege that people feel confident enough to tell you that.
1: Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life.
2: We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast.
1: So today we're really pleased to welcome along Ian Smith, who's into his 30th year as a lawyer. Ian started out in a civil firm where Robert Louis Stevenson trained, but in 1998 he created his own business with Jim Keegan, King's Counsel. Ian concentrated on crime, but also did children's referral hearings and acted as a sports lawyer for international rugby stars. In 2018, Ian describes himself as having an epiphany in reaction to being educated on the biological impact of trauma on the childhood brain. He suddenly saw his clients properly for the first time and he then realised others didn't know about childhood trauma and the links to addiction and poor self-regulation. In December 2020, Ian co-created Trauma Aware Law with legal colleagues and pals from the Scottish Police Violence Reduction Unit. He's won a number of awards for his work, including 2020 Scottish Lawyer of the Year at the Scottish Legal Awards. We we're lucky enough very recently to have uh, Dean Kingham from who won the English Scottish uh, the English English Lawyer of the Year awards in that year. Uh, 2021, he won the Herald Scottish Criminal Law Firm of, of the Year with his firm Keegan Smith. And in 2022, um, this with his firm, won the Scottish Legal Awards Criminal Lo- Law Firm of the Year. And also that same year won the Herald Legal Awards Innovation Award for Trauma Aware Law and he has been nominated for the Pro Bono Award. And this is, the awards opened doors and gave credibility to Ian's campaigning. Ian's aim is to bring knowledge of trauma into the justice system and then persuade the players in it to change and create more compassionate outcomes for those who we perceive as baddies. Welcome, Ian. Glad to have you on.
0: Uh, Nice to meet you both, uh, Naomi, and to David as well.
2: Hi, Ian. Very good to meet you and thanks very much for coming along. That's a very impressive record that uh, Naomi has just been describing. So what attracted due to a career in law? Is this something you've always wanted to do?
0: Um, so historic. my father was a police officer, my mother worked as a cashier in a law firm. Uh, so I guess uh, I grew up with an interest in, in, in crime and criminal law. And uh, I actually tried to join the Metropolitan Police when I was in fifth year at school, but I was too short. <laughs> and my <laughs> eyesight was uh, too poor for a Scottish police. But when my dad found out I wanted to join the Met, uh, he soon dismissed that, thinking it was a very bad idea. And uh, I ended up doing OK my exams as such to get uh, into Edinburgh Law School. And that's what I decided to do. So, yeah, that was me.
2: So, looking back, it it, it looks like you had a lucky shave and not uh, being signed up for the Met.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think so. Looking, looking at it now... Um, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have been a good police officer, I don't think. Um, I certainly wouldn't have been very good at, uh, certainly, the physical aspects of some policing, but I have to say some of the best police officers I've met over the past 30 years tend not to use their batons or their spray, but tend to use their mouth and talking to people. Uh, and as much as I talk about trauma-informed law, um, there's a lot of community police officers who instinctively practice trauma-informed policing um, and get the fact that people struggle and that they don't require to be shouted at but can be spoken to in a, a dignified and respectful manner and end up not having to use physical restraint and the like. Um, it doesn't always work that way, but I've, I've met many police officers who I think inadvertently practice uh, trauma-informed policing. So I'm glad I'm not a police officer. I'm glad I'm a lawyer, but I'm also glad I changed how i practice law over the past five years.
2: Yeah, that's a very good description, I think, of a good police person. So you've become known for recognizing the need to understand the role that trauma plays. (coughs) Excuse me. To understand the role that trauma plays in criminal law work. How did you come to this realization?
0: So in around November 2017, I met a lady called Leslie Udwin, maybe not have heard of her, but uh, she was voted by the New York Times Magazine uh, in I think 2015 as the second most powerful woman on the planet, or second most powerful person on the planet behind Hillary Clinton. And uh, Leslie um, followed uh, and created the documentary called India's Daughter. And it was about the rape of a, a young Indian a doctor on a bus by six men. It was quite a big case in Delhi and became celebrated because women in Delhi came out and rebelled against misogyny, male violence, rape uh, of women and how women were treated in society. and Leslie made this great documentary about um following the men, following the story, and realized how mundane the men were because they were portrayed as monsters, but she realized they weren't actually monsters. And I run a local community cinema, and she came up from London, screened her film, and we became friends. And she ended up creating a charity called Think Equal, all about early years uh, development of children, and um, from a very early age about social emotional learning. And it sort of got me thinking um, about what was going on with my clients. And then in March 2018, I met people from the Scottish Violence Reduction Unit, including Karen McCluskey and John Carnekin. And they took me along to see a film called Resilience, uh, made by the late and great James Redford, uh, son of Robert Redford. And that was all about what was going on in America, about the uh, study by Ander and Felitti from 95, and the impact of stress and toxic stress on the young brain, everything that you guys know about. But as a lawyer, rather unfortunately, I didn't know about that. So I spent around 25 years of my legal career as a criminal lawyer, not really properly understanding nearly all the people that I dealt with in the system, not understanding why my clients self-medicated on drugs and alcohol, not understanding why they were very quick to respond in an angry fashion to small stressful situations. Everything was exaggerated and large. And often my response then We'd be very poor so if someone was rude to me I would be rude or impolite back um, I wouldn't give them much time and um, when they were telling me things even important things I probably didn't properly listen and uh, that film more or less overnight impacted on how I practice law as a lawyer how my business practice law I guess how I was as a person, I think, even with my own children, I reflected in some of the very bad practices um, I was involved in in, in terms of uh, not controlling my children, but I, I guess acting in a way that was uh, the adult knows best type of thing and not really hearing their, their wants or their needs. So, yeah, so overnight that, that film was the epiphany and uh, really changed the course of what I do.
2: That's terribly interesting, Ian, because it sounds like you're describing really quite a fundamental shift, not just in your attitude, but in your personality. And, and uh, there must have been something going on within you, uh, not just the film, but something that was kind of you know, boiling, boiling up, really ready for a, for a change and this major development in your life.
0: Yeah, as I say, with Leslie coming up, it was purely because I run a community cinema. So um, if you've never met her, so Leslie won a BAFTA for East is East. She produced East is East, the film. Um, and she is probably one of the most inspiring and powerful people I've ever met in my life. Um, and effectively, it inadvertently inspired me to to change. So although I didn't understand about the trauma when I met her, and hers was really about Educating very young people, but it is all interlinked because by the failure to educate children about social emotional learning, they probably f- fail to properly understand empathy, equality, and all all the learnings that Le- Leslie was given. Um, it was with Sir Ken Robinson, Meryl Streep is involved in their charity, Susan Sarandon. So all these superstars are involved with Leslie is that if people don't properly understand or are educated gently in this stuff because it's gentle learning for very young people then they may grow up as i see with a lot of clients in stressful households where they don't know any other way so i used to i guess i used to loosely believe that my clients who would come in who were young involved in hitting their girlfriends or taking drugs and alcohol did that through learned behavior only rather than necessarily acquire behavior through neurology or psychology, if if that makes sense. Again, I'll bow to your great knowledge on this, but what I now understand and see is clients being told all the time about being responsible for their actions, but because of their stress that they're not response-able, so they don't have that ability, and therefore their culpability for me lessens, it doesn't mean to say it's okay. So it's never an excuse that someone has a high level of trauma in their childhood to say, well, they can do what they want. I think it's a very important explanation that the justice system misses out. And it's a key, for me, it's key because it deals with probably 80 to 90% of who I see every single day in court. There's a lot of people who do things that are wrong. um, And it's not an excuse, as I say, but it's an explanation. And some people might just be greedy. Um, they may have other issues going on, which isn't related to childhood trauma. But most of what I see, I think, links back to what happened to them rather than what was wrong with them.
2: Thank you. And in, in a way, you've, you've begun to describe how you changed your practice arising from this kind of fundamental uh, development in your awareness could you say a bit more
0: about that though yeah sure I, I, as I say I, I suddenly saw who was actually in front of me so when I was in my office when I was in court speaking to people um I listened a lot harder and actually heard what they had to say I allowed space and time for them to maybe tell me a little bit more and um, I didn't for example score people in terms of their their trauma I wasn't counting the number of aces um, uh, from from someone. But often in the social work reports, it would be quietly whispered that they had a difficult childhood. They wouldn't enumerate the trauma in someone's life. They wouldn't regard it as relevant or they didn't seem to regard it as relevant. So I guess I probed a little bit harder, but not by saying, have you ever been sexually abused or who's hurt you? But it'd be often, for example, more neutral questions um, do you know why you drink so much? Why why do you think you rely on drugs? And and why do you take it so chronically? Do you have any idea why you do that? And often if they feel comfortable, and by then, usually I'd always had a pretty good relationship with clients, so I think they felt safe. But more often than not, they would tell me things that they hadn't told me before, frankly, probably because they may have felt I would have shamed them or it would be embarrassing or that I wouldn't understand. Um, or that maybe my empathy levels were, were, were poor but the change in me in terms of how I practiced and how I spoke I think resulted in a change in terms of the information I got but also the reactions I got from the clients so James Doherty I don't know if he's been on your show but he, he worked for the violence reduction unit is a absolutely incredible human being but he said to me I said I don't understand why my clients are now telling me Often apropos of nothing, and often after the court proceedings, so there was no gain for them that they were telling me that they'd been sexually abused when they were young, and I'm not asking them this question. And he said it's because they know that I won't shame them, and I found that incredibly powerful. And it's incredible, although it sounds bad to say it's a burden, but you know, but I don't, I don't like to hear that my clients have been sexually abused or had terrible childhoods, but it's also a privilege that people feel confident enough to tell you that. And, and I guess in response, what my response is, which wouldn't be before, is to try and be empathetic. So I don't say I understand, but I might say I'm really sorry to hear that happened. And then I try as best I can to signpost them for what help is available. Often in drugs recovery in Scotland, certainly very poor, um, we keep people alive with the So there's been a big campaign by the Scottish government to concentrate in the on. So that's good. We keep people alive, but we don't help them live, and we don't help them heal, and we don't help them recover. Um, and so there's a big gap in that. But anyway, that's maybe beyond the question you asked. But yeah, so 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 I guess I I, I bet it was very much a change in me, and a change in how we viewed people, and I think that ended up being a very positive thing for most of the
2: clients. Thank you, thank you. I think you're a very modest uh, man, actually, Ian. Um, For example, you slipped in that you ran a community cinema, as if that were nothing in its own right, but was clearly part of the whole engagement that you had with the the world.
0: Yeah, that's probably one of my my first loves is uh, cinema and film. It turned out um, about 10 years ago, I found out I was dyslexic Um, didn't know that uh, when I was young, didn't know that was at school or when I was at university um, and it explained an awful lot. So I hated reading. I still am I'm brilliant at reading it. So, for example, all the the books by Gabor Matty, or Bezel van der Kolk or, you know, all, 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 all the great writers, um, I have to force myself to read them. Um, but obviously, I can read, I'm just a very slow reader. Um, so, film is always my default. So, uh, me and a group of friends, so it's not just me that runs it, there's a group of us that run it, um, run a, a local free community cinema. So, we bring the community together. Um, and it's a really great thing. to stay in a small village. And um, so, that, that aspect of my life, I guess, has always been there. Um, but it's just because I enjoy the medium of film and visual art rather than necessarily um uh, writing which i i I do love poetry i love reading but i'm just not very good at it
1: (laughs) but i i tend to agree with david ian and it's interesting that you know david comments on your humility and and actually you dismiss the achievement of that's just that's just what you do and my guess is that's partly why the clients relate to you that that sense of not pushing yourself into a, a position having, of having power over them or authority but just relating to them as human beings?
0: Mm, well I don't know there's probably some adverse childhood experience for me is why I'm not very good at taking any praise so <laughs> we'll not go into that.
1: <laughs> so uh, how, Ian I, as you were talking I was wondering how easy have you found it to get other parties in the legal system to, to actually listen to the message that you have?
0: Yeah so that's a, a good question and um, as I say, there's now a little group of us. So in December 2020, um, there were three there's three lawyers uh, who have got together. We now have others who are either professors or lecturers at university who have got involved with us. We've got a psychotherapist from the Scottish Violence Reduction Unit. Uh, we have a peer mentor in the form of uh, James Doherty, who's a project manager there, is very inspirational, a school teacher, a BAFTA-winning filmmaker who's involved. So we're a disparate band of people now, but at the time, around 2018, um, I didn't really know anyone else doing this or talking about it. I didn't plan to do this, but I just thought, oh, I think lawyers need to know about this. So in around April 2018, I wrote an article for the Scottish Law Journal, 16,000 lawyers get this journal every month. And I wrote this in conjunction with Dr Suzanne Ziedike, who's one of the leading uh, attachment uh, specialists in, in uh, the UK I think if not the world and she helpfully set out about adverse childhood experiences the impact and why that was relevant for lawyers so wrote the article dyslexic man thinking brilliant that's uh, a good turn that's the job done but of course most people didn't read it a lot of people that did read it thought it was a load of rubbish And my wife, uh, Ishbel pointed out that that was really only the start of the campaign rather than the end of it. Although I didn't plan on going a campaign, I started going to meetings. We created what was called the West Lothian ACES Hub. That was made up of people from health, justice and education because we could see that holistically it wasn't just one area needed to change, that everybody had to work together to understand the impact of trauma. The local council were persuaded to buy the film license for resilience. And we went into loads of different environments, hospitals, schools, primary schools, um, children's reporter's office, prosecutors, um, the police. And we basically showed the film, which lasts an hour, and and then explained to them the impact it had on us. So rather than telling them what they should do, I, I would just tell them the story of what I did and why I thought, what I did was different and why it was a good thing for me. And then they got to decide which clever ways in their own industry, social work, or whatever area, you know, they, they it wasn't for me to tell them what they should do. Um, and so at first friends and colleagues were saying things like, are you feeling okay? Um, is everything all right? As if because of the language I was using, it seemed not shocking, but odd. I would talk about love. I would talk about compassion. i talk about empathy and kindness um, and why we couldn't punish people into a better way of being and why we really had to look in a a journey of recovery for people, in particular young people. But in my view, we shouldn't give up on a 50-year-old who's addicted to heroin, who was sexually abused when they were eight. You know, people for me, I think, I'm not saying salvageable or fixable is the wrong words, but I, I think we need to be more compassionate to whoever, even if even if their behaviours are poor. But they're all, as you guys know, that they're manifestations of behaviours which are, you know, from a cause, from a from somewhere, often very dark. And I didn't really understand that before, and I've got a better understanding now. But I'm I'm learning every day.
1: It's interesting, isn't it as you you know you're talking about using words like love and compassion that actually there there is a bit of a taboo around you know those ideas within the criminal justice system. we're much more comfortable with people being angry and punitive even when they're the staff it seems it's much harder to um to get people to listen to. Um, to words like love and love and compassion and certainly when I worked in prison the officers used to get called care bears in a disparaging way for talking about having a more compassionate approach so I can only think that working in the amongst the community in a profession where that isn't the norm for it to be spoken about that you must have had to have or develop quite a thick skin to you know I, I can imagine there would be ridicule at times.
0: Yeah it, it felt it felt like that and I know like I know some behind my back would say, well, oh, here he goes again with this trauma pish. Or just, I guess, because what you don't know, you don't know. So so it was always from a point of view of, I didn't really resent any of that because I got the fact that they didn't get it. So sometimes they'd say, look, I know you're going on about this trauma stuff, but all they need is a wee job, um, a wee bird, which is a girlfriend, and a wee house, and they'll be sorted. But that's that's tomorrow's... Domestic abuser, because it doesn't resolve at the root of what their difficulty is. Mm. So the house and the money and the job and the girlfriend isn't going to cure the difficulties they experience if they're struggling with life from from their childhoods. And it just it just uh, James Dozier talks about you know what you don't transform you transmit, and, and and that and I can see that I didn't see it before. So yeah, it was it was. It was a difficult thing but actually as I say it wasn't planned so therefore I didn't feel disappointment when I was getting closed doors or ridicule or, or anything like that but I became fairly uh, resolved that and and still am that basically this is so important that um, being hurt about doors closing or people thinking I'm daft it's much bigger that's certainly much bigger than me and much bigger than the trauma aware law group that I'm in It's just such a big thing that um, I keep going. The Scottish Government, I have to say, have been very, very good. Um, They probably, around 2018, started their own trauma-informed awareness campaigns. They worked with NHS, um, NEST, National Education Service of the NHS. So we have Caroline Bruce, who's the head of trauma in Scotland. Um, She's a fully qualified... uh, psychologist and uh, she she is brilliant along with her uh, colleagues and team so they're very good at sending out education both to schools teachers and into the community So be, it, it, be, it has become less of a, a weird thing to talk about but I think until um, what I talk about in court is said by everyone um then it's not it's not yet ready and until judges understand it's not yet ready but but I want what I do to be very mundane. To be very normal that I don't win awards, you know, which aren't aren't important, are not really relevant. But so it'd be better that it, the 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 trophy at the end of this would be just for everyone to understand it, to react to it, so that the key is not waiting because the judges always say you've got to change when they're dealing with someone in the dock. You've got to do better. You've got to change. And in my head, all I'm thinking is not actually we've got to change, because. We've been doing the same thing over and over and getting the same result which is recidivism, mass incarceration. Scotland has the highest incarceration rate in Western Europe. Scotland, our little country, has the highest drugs deaths amongst the world. We are three times more than England and about nine and a half times more than the European average. This is Scotland, it's a small country and yet because we don't look at things differently and we're slow to change, we allow this devastation to continue to happen. So the reality is the system has got to change. The judges have got to change. The lawyers, the fiscals, the police, the social workers, the healthcare system, the education system. Stop putting kids in front of lights to look at the light switch to think about their bad behaviour. Get the, the teacher to switch on the light in their head to think, why is this child... Behaving poorly, disruptively. What's what is going on in that child's life? And then you start getting, I think, a better community.
1: Really shocking statistics there, Ian. Actually, I didn't I hadn't realised that Scotland came out so poorly in terms of. Kind knew there was a a problem around substance misuse, but actually quite shocked with with some of those other other figures and. Yeah. That- i thought the advice your wife gave you was very very good advice as well the idea that you have to keep going and keep saying the same message repeatedly because i think it's very easy to feel not bored but almost like you've, is there anyone left to hear this message because i've said it so many times and yet you still have to keep going with with this message
0: yes no so absolutely it's um... As I said, I don't, really, I don't like the sound of my own voice. Thankfully, this is a radio rather than a TV uh, type interview. But yet you end up saying the same things. But actually, I'm saying them because a lot of people still haven't heard them. Or if they've heard them, maybe hearing them a second time, it maybe sinks in. Mm-hmm. I don't have all the answers, obviously. but I'm just saying all I can do is explain what I see and how I see changes happening. And I usually do it through like stories of happens in court so you know I can share that with you as well but just happy to be led by you and what you want me to talk about
1: that's that's brilliant I mean if you if you've if you've got examples of times where you think that's really made a difference to your practice in court and maybe helped get a different outcome for somebody that would be that'd be great to hear that
0: so 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 there's a young lad we'll call him Brendan this is about just before Covid um, he appears on a warrant, so he's arrested by the police for breaching what we call a community payback order. Um, in this case, it was supervision by a social worker and unpaid work, and he hadn't done it. And by failing to do it and not turning up, a warrant was issued for his arrest. He's arrested. It turns out when I meet him in the cells in Edinburgh, he had been homeless. He'd been taking drugs and really struggling with life, but by the time I met him, he'd got himself involved with the Rock Trust, who are an organisation I think they may be UK-wide, but helped him with his housing and getting some furniture. He worked with an organisation called Aid and Bet, who deal with people coming out of prison to make sure they've got benefits, and make sure they've got prescriptive medication, and try to organise houses so that they deal with the chaos when someone leaves prison. I know a lot of your Your stuff is about people who are locked up, but obviously they then come out of prison, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And so Aidan a bit helped. So they helped him. He went to see his general practitioner, got prescriptive medication. He engaged with his social worker. So things were going, by the time he appeared from custody, things were actually going very well for him and he was doing really well. I also described to the judge, not only about how well he was doing, but his history of trauma. He was born into chaos. Both parents uh, were addicted to substances. Father left the scene quite early on. And then regrettably, his mum went through a series of different men who were abusive to her and no doubt probably to him. He was in and out of care. By the age of 10, he was drinking alcohol. By the age of 11, uh, heavily involved in cannabis and alcohol. And by the age of 13, his first uh, go of heroin was delivered by his mother. So I tell the judge this and in a very busy court, she says, well, what are you asking me to do? I said, well, I'd like you to praise him. And she went, sorry, as if I thought she hadn't heard me. So in this very busy court, which was then suddenly quiet, I boomed out. I'd I'd like you to praise him. And she went, praise him? I'm I'm thinking about jailing him. I said, well, he's under 21. You can't jail him. You need to get reports. Well, I'll remand him for reports. I said, well, don't remand him because I've explained, you know, he has a house, he's got medication, he's getting mentoring, he's seeing his doctor. All oh, right, so away you go then, four weeks, and she let him out. Four weeks later, I come armed with a report from the Rock Trust, Aidan bit his doctor, and importantly, his social worker. But his social worker had narrated all the terrible things that had happened in his childhood, just as I had described them. And as I'm ready to get up, I've got my gown on in court. I'm ready to get up to go to battle with the judge. And she told me to sit down. And in my head, I thought, here we go. She told the boy to stand up and for 10 minutes, she praised him. She saw the person probably for the first time before her, saw his difficulties and his struggles and quite rightly praised him for the efforts he made. And she gave him another chance, a further chance on the order and continued the order and wished him luck. And as we left court and went out, he said nobody had ever spoken to him like that in his life. And my one regret about that that little story is, although I see this judge quite regularly, I've never told her the effect that she had on him. That it doesn't cure someone That That interaction in court doesn't cure people. Court is not the place for healing, in my view. in 2019, I brought, brought two American judges over uh, with the assistance of Community Justice Scotland, and they are they run what are called therapeutic courts, uh, or procedural justice courts, where they treat everyone with dignity uh, and respect, and they do things a little bit differently. One of them triages for mental health within the court, so they have a mental health nurse and practitioners and they triage to see whether someone should go into hospital or what help they can give them now for me the court is not the venue to help people or to help people into recovery but it might be the the kickstart it might be the the, the pivot which can change someone so a judge praising someone a judge being kind to someone seeing who's before them might be that little magical education moment to say, I'm normally terrified from a judge, but now that judge has seen me, I- I'm going to make the effort. Now, it doesn't always happen in that, in that moment. But for me, what they've then got to do in starting that compassion journey is to persevere with the people, to give them hope, and to keep going with them when they fall on their arse, which inevitably a lot of people do, because as you guys know, there's no overnight cure for trauma. And it can take months, years, a lifetime, but the choice is treating people badly, treating people with disdain. You know, carrying out retribution as opposed to rehabilitation, putting in place firstly punishment rather than healing, doesn't certainly doesn't help uh, fix anyone suffering trauma. It just pushes them down, and that, in my view, is we should be lifting them up. Doesn't mean to say we don't necessarily punish poor behaviour. Appreciate some people have a thirst for that, but if the prime, the primary function for me would be in particular with lower level crime, would be rehabilitation. And now, thankfully, in Scotland, we can come on to that later, but thankfully, in Scotland, as of the 26th of January last year, uh, they have changed uh, the system. Um, uh, so, so we'd we had a hand in that, but we we campaigned quite vigorously to have the. Scottish Sentencing Council take into account traumatic childhoods, adverse childhood experiences, and they now do that with every case involving an under 25-year-old at each level of court. And that affects not only mitigation, so it makes it less bad, but also culpability. So they recognise that people have got the capacity to change, so the primary function of that sentencing guideline is to focus on rehabilitation rather than retribution. And it's, it's a massive thing. I don't think the judges realise just how massive it is because they've not been trained on trauma. They have a toolkit now as of November last year. But you at know, a deep level, they need to understand trauma and understand the people who are before them. And then they'll start giving out fairly um, poignant and appropriate disposals. Because once they understand it, I think they'll do something differently. So it's a very long answer. <laughs>
1: well just you know i found that very moving actually that account of you know the young guy in court and how your intervention perhaps enabled something very different to happen it's it's really lovely to hear that kind of story cuz too too often on the we on these podcasts david and i ex- end up exploring some of the more toxic elements of institutional organisational mm. life and it's really nice to hear something that that's quite heartwarming um but i i wondered in terms of your your business if you you know has it impacted on your business at all yeah you, you know is it is it so, so is traditionally it's
0: a business traditionally if a seventeen year old often boys as you probably realize you know probably i would say about eighty percent of those eighty to ninety percent going through our justice system are male so if, if a seventeen year old boy walked to my door clutching what we call a petition or a a complaint with charges on it indicating that they were involved in housebreakings at a very early age. Historically, from a financial point of view, I would be rubbing my hands thinking, here's the golden goose. And now when they come through with the same scenario, I end up thinking, I wonder what's going on with his life. I wonder how he got here. So I would never encourage anyone to commit crime, um, but I probably didn't spend a lot of time discouraging it. So in terms of that now, because of the signposting to the local college, to um, support groups, to um, doctors often, people that can help them, encourage them to engage with social work, probably historically didn't really do that. Almost it was a game that you've got to play the game, as it were, you've got to go with them, but it was part of the system. Whereas now I say, look, these people actually really, really want to help you and take the help. So that that 17 year old coming through my door, historically would lead to 20, 30 cases, netting me a lot of money. But the nice thing, which wasn't designed or planned, is although that person might end his career before it begins, which is obviously for me now, part of the aim, um, he'll send his 10 friends around and say, go and see that lawyer because he cares about what happens so in an ironic way rather than having ten cases from the one boy, I now have ten new clients who hopefully are all never going to get into trouble once mm-hmm. um so I've, I've probably never been busier but it, it was the change was never really with the thought to make more money or make less money it was just to me that it was the right thing to do and and as I say it, the courts now see it as the right thing to do and I think in fairness to a lot of my colleagues um you know, nobody, as I say, nobody, none of the lawyers that I know ever really want people to get into trouble, don't want any serious harm to come to anyone, you know, but we probably weren't particularly good at being the person to discourage them because what we would say is, as we often say, and hear other people say, that's not my job. I, I was once criticised for by social work for waiting outside the custody suite, waiting for a young man to come out to present him as homeless about 10 meters away in the front desk of a civic center. And they told me that it wasn't my job. And they were right, of course, because I, I feel it was their job. That was part of their job. But whilst they weren't doing it, I did it. And I think we spend an awful lot of time um, worry, worrying or thinking about the things that aren't our jobs. So for me, Caring about people should be all of our jobs. Um, reduction of harm should be all of our jobs. And yet, we seem to get so stuck in our little silos about, well, that that's you that's going to do that, and that's that person that's going to do that. So it's not my job to be a psychologist. It's not my job to be a social worker. It's not my job, in quotations, to fix someone. Um, but I, I think, in a, a human element, I think we can all care a bit more about what we do. And do a little bit more but that's for that's for other people to decide what they want to do but I certainly don't really appreciate uh, those that overly judge um me doing maybe going an extra yard as long as it's ethical so I'm not breaking ethical, ethical. boundaries I'm not pretending I'm their friend um you know they know I'm their lawyer and um, they don't think I'm anything else uh, I don't try and be a superman or superhero I don't no longer try to rescue people although probably for the first couple of years I you know I got that syndrome or that feeling that you know I could I could change their lives and I, and I know that that just isn't realistic and, and it leads to burnout so so I don't do that but yeah I, I do feel that the idea of it's it's not your job is very flawed.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you and you, you clearly think the application of law would look different if all lawyers were trained to understand the impact of trauma, but I was just thinking, do you think all lawyers are actually open to that or are the barriers, personal interpersonal barriers that are So, intrapos-
0: so we, were, or, sorry. When we started our little group in um, December 2020 on the basis that we were never going to resolve anything top-down so that the policy makers and the lawmakers and the judges were not going to change and that the only way we were going to make a difference was grassroots and, and bottom-up. So what we did as a group is we went into all, all 10 law schools in Scotland, are 10 LLB or uh, law schools in Scotland at university level. And we went in and did talks to all uh, of those 10 universities, either at law schools, um, law clinics, but to the students, because we thought that's the next generation of lawyers. And, and we continue to do that each year. And we thought that was a great thing to do. We then got in touch to the Law Society of Scotland and said, look, can we be part of your conference? So they dedicated half a day of their annual conference to trauma. That ended up being quite a big thing. And then we ended up doing talks online and then we've done recorded talks and there's resources available. But what we're now doing, we've done this for, I think, over two years, um, is that we've created, through the Law Society of Scotland, an accredited specialist trauma uh, aware course and that's uh, assisted by great speakers like Caroline Bruce who's the head of trauma uh, in the government um, other guest speakers from the we have at the moment we have an, a public inquiry regarding childhood sexual abuse people have come along spoke from that um, children's champions psychologists People uh, don't like the term lived experience, but people who have experienced their own trauma have shared some of that. And that's a five or six week course, which is quite intense, but only about 20 or 30 lawyers can do it at a time. Apparently, the course is oversubscribed tenfold. So we did, I think, um, number two or three of this course yesterday. There was 32 lawyers on it. And they're wanting us to do it now four times a year rather than once a year so that more lawyers get it because of the subscription. And the other bigger practices and firms have asked if we can train all their firm, all their staff. So I think there's a massive appetite for it now. It's no longer something to have a red face about or to be embarrassed about talking about it. That it's something that people see is really important. That they worry not only for their clients, but they worry for staff. That They worry about... um, how they present to their clients um, and everyone as well. They worry about vicarious trauma, um, you know, especially lots of firms deal with uh, claims for sexual abuse or in the public inquiry for sexual abuse. And, and, and how do they um, effectively have reflective practice about the information that they have to then deal with? You know, and you know, absorb, and I'm not particularly good at it. I know it's maybe one of the questions you wanted to ask later on, but I, I'm not particularly good at uh, switching off. I'm not particularly good at keeping healthy boundaries. I think at times, and bringing stuff home and and it weighing heavily on your shoulders. But I also then comfort myself by the fact that if I wasn't doing it, then maybe nobody else would. So, but I equally, don't think I don't think I can do it on my own but I'm just saying that um, it's a consequence to some extent, I think I'll, I'll live with, but it does, it does affect other things. It affects your ability to gauge engage properly at home. So that the, the the phrase you can't pour from an empty cup springs to mind. So I know I've got to keep healthy. I joined the gym yesterday, <laughs> threatened to go to today, <laughs> but I had to race home to come on to the podcast, but I'll go to, I'll definitely try and go tomorrow. So I think, you know, I think it's important to obviously keep yourself well, but, um, yeah, I, th- I think it, it's very easy to say, you know, I can't get involved in this because it's it's not professional. I've got to detach myself from my client's problems because it's not professional. I, I, I disagree with that. I think it's important that we attach and that we create relationships, albeit healthy relationships, sp- bounded in the sense that I'm still a lawyer, I'm, I'm not someone's friend, I'm not pretending to be some someone I'm not, but I think you can still be a lawyer, but actually create a, a relationship of trust, which is at a deeper level if you understand about trauma.
2: Thank you. Um, I'm slightly overwhelmed by the amount that you've been doing, Ian. You've been so active and creative in this, uh, this in this uh, field. Yeah. I think you must come back again sometime and go into these aspects and activity in greater detail. But I wanted to ask you how you'd like to see the system change to take into account these, these histories of trauma. Now, I think you've already mentioned one thing which was to do with somehow softening the boundaries here between the different professions Um, and placing a greater emphasis upon the relationship across those boundaries. But are there there other ways? Yeah, so I think a holistic approach is important. A
0: holistic understanding of of trauma is important in all areas. Um, There has been, in terms of the the grassroots movement, the great thing that did happen, I know I've alluded to it, but the Scottish Sentencing Council on January twenty two. Change the guidelines about young people. So we changed our young people in our system from under 21s to under 25s to reflect at least some ideas of the malleable brain. I know there's arguments to say that it goes on till 30 or beyond, but they've picked 25, which I'll take just now as a starter. And they concentrate on adverse childhood experiences and childhood trauma. And then they effectively, although they don't realize they're doing that, give examples of that. So they talk about care experience, has to be known and identified, addiction issues, mental health issues, communication needs. And, and, and these are to me are subcategories of traumatic experiences. Um, so in every case at every level, high court, sheriff court, justice of the peace court, they identify and look at that trauma and the impact it has both on mitigation and culpability. And that would then lead them to focusing on rehabilitation rather than punishment. So that's a massive change, and that is a systems change, a proper systems change. Requires a bit more training for the judges, but they've started that by a toolkit in November of last year, but they need to change and understand it. So if I've been a judge for 40 years, then I think how I deal with them is as fair as I can be, and I I don't want to change. Why should I change? I am the judge, I am the boss. I, I decide what happens. Nobody's going to tell me, but of course they are telling them now because the sentencing council uh, is headed by the second highest judge in Scotland, Lady Dorian, and that that has been sent to them to follow. If they don't follow that uh, remit, then they'll be appealed and their sentence is altered. But in order to change, they need to know why they're changing. They need to understand the trauma. They, They need to have Um, a response, a change within themselves, and probably more importantly, at the end of that, actually have the ability to do something creative and reactive rather than sending people to jail. And in Scotland, it's a bit of a lottery. Which charities are available? Which services are available? I think Scotland, I could be wrong about this, but Scotland has a very low number of rehab beds for drugs and alcohol, Um, effectively state-funded. The others are privately funded, and there's quite a few of them, but you have to have the knowledge and ability to get into that privately funded bed. So it's not not like um, in America, it's not the Betty Ford Clinic, it's not you're spending tens of thousands as an individual, so only rich people get it, but you need to know how your benefits can be placed in rehab. So as I say, we've been brilliant at getting the locks on about keeping people alive will be less good at helping them live in a healthy way. Um, because you know there's various schools of thoughts and, and they seem to suggest they compete with each other, for example, in Scotland, about the abstinence. You're either abstinence-orientated uh, or you're treatment-related. But actually, the, there's probably a variety of ways people can be helped. People might not be ready to come off substances, People might not want to come off substances because it's the thing that keeps them going and people might want help to come off them might want rehab so there's i think there's not one size fits all but we're just not very good at having those resources i mean i have a dedicated drugs minister who i think is doing our best to try and address that but there's very limited funds as you know there's a recession on and but for me we should be prioritizing um of being aware of the trauma, being aware why people take drugs and if they want help, that we should be able to give them that.
1: Legal work obviously means lawyers hearing lots of accounts of suffering, both the suffering of victims and also the emotional pain in the histories of those that are coming into contact with the courts. Should lawyers have reflective practice to process their own emotions about the work? You've kind of mentioned already that that's something that can be quite challenging, that you can end up taking taking the work home so to speak yeah. should all should should all lawyers be doing reflective practice
0: yeah I think that'd be good I think as a, as a general thing reflective practices are great for not only when things go wrong but also what you've done well and you know just it doesn't need to be trauma related it could just be how you how you've dealt with the case and and then speak amongst your peers but and that doesn't just need to be criminal law. It can be, as I say, lots of civil law, family law. Can be very, um, It can be very upsetting about you know the things that are going on in and, 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 you know, children's cases. It doesn't need to involve sexual abuse for it to be upsetting. It's just people's emotions and uh, people's feelings. Uh, and I think being able to speak about it in, in a, a healthy, a safe environment I think is really important. The lawyers at this child sex, sex abuse inquiry have the benefit of Anne McKechnie, who's a very experienced psychologist and she's part of their team. And they do debriefs and they do reflective practice and they talk about it. And I think there is the ability to get therapy or med, you know, meditation or you know, just, just ways of dealing with it. I, I, I see a guy now and again who, He's a great guy he's involved in the the Law Society's uh, trauma course but he'll he'll do meditation with me something I never thought I'd want to do I never do because I just thought it was a bit airy-fairy but actually you realize how important it is uh, to, to do that but I'm, I'm not particularly good myself um, and avoiding vicarious trauma I'm not particularly good at processing it it does it does floor me at times um, but that's, that's no use for my other clients if, if I'm not able to function properly because I'm upset about a, a set of circumstances. I've had, I've had 16 deaths of clients, drug-related deaths, in the past two years. I'm a very small practice. I've had numerous clients, and friends unfortunately, but numerous clients take their own life. Um, and that, that's always hard to deal with because in some ways it's not explicable in a way that drug-related death is, albeit unfair and unacceptable. Um, and and these things, they, they hit you hard. As I say, I don't pretend my clients are my friends, but um, you know I'll often try to go to their funerals, and, and it, it's quite sad when you go that often nobody else is there. Probably more sad is when you hear and learn about all the things you didn't know about them, their love of music. Some of them have a faith that you didn't think they would have, or... Just little things that um, yeah affect you, but yeah, the the loss of a client, as I say, drug related or to suicide or or just with with their poor health is is very sad, and it's it's quite it happens a lot in criminal law. Um, unacceptable mm-hmm. large amounts.
1: Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about that relationship with clients. And I think even in outside of you've you've named sort of family law where there's an involvement with with children, um, personal injury law as again, you know, lawyers are hearing powerful stories about people, and quite often when people come into contact with lawyers, they're coming into contact because things have gone awry, things aren't going, aren't going well. And it's really um, it's really uh, impressive to hear you talking about the relationship that a lawyer has with their client as being a real a real relationship I have the same conversations with psychologists that it's it's still a real relationship it's a professional relationship but you invest emotionally in someone and clearly you can hear that you invest emotionally in your clients and the matter which I'm sure um, is part of why why your contact so powerful and meaningful. Uh, with them but how have you managed to keep yourself healthy whilst doing this this work Ian?
0: Yeah I think the presumption would be that I am healthy but at times I'm not so um, I find it emotionally draining at times, um, depressing at times. Um, I, as I say I've, I've joined the gym, I've not physically been yet, but uh, I try to I cycle, I, see, I try to keep sort of some level of fitness so I cycle uh, with a group of friends, I try and do that every week. Um, I, I've i got a dog, so I go dog walking. Um, try to do things with my, with the kids, but my kids now are 21, 18 and 16. And certainly it's not quite the same when they're eight, six and four, you know, they, they don't really need you. Um, and even though you, you have a desire to be with them, that doesn't always uh, work the same way. So you try tried to do, things as a family Um, but yeah I I think in the community cinema that you know about um, yeah I don't as I say I don't always strike the right balance for my own good health and well-being Um, I spend a lot of time doing this in terms of campaigning um, which I do enjoy but again I've had to say more to to quite a lot more things because I realise it was taking up an awful lot of time. So time that, for example, we're doing this at lunchtime because I don't want it to affect my business or my business partner feeling I'm not pulling my weight, for example. But it then means that your downtime or free time is less. But I still think it's hugely important. That's why I'm here. I know you've had a lot of very good guests on. I've listened to quite a bit of your podcasts. Um, Prison is uh, something I take really seriously in terms of where people end up and what better outcomes there are. Um, I don't know, we've obviously maybe not got time to speak about this in any detail, but um, last year, uh, myself, James Doherty and, and, and others, it brought Fritzy Hortzman over from America and Fritzie's in charge of the Compassion Prison Project mm-hmm. and uh, made the Compassion Circle. I don't know if you've seen that little video. I
1: have,
0: yeah. Yeah, so... Have you seen that, David? I,
1: it'd be helpful also for our listeners anyway to hear about it because it's definitely worth watching if you haven't
0: yeah so i i watched that i saw it on linkedin and as i say i've become uh i've been more disinhibited since i started this campaigning so my shy dyslexia way of being has now made me a bit more um ballsy about just asking because the worst thing people can say is no so i approached fritzy and said what how about coming over to scotland and start speaking to our uh, people in prison. Yeah, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And before I know it, um, uh, with the help of our organisers, there's a group called Tigers, Suzanne Zedike was involved, Sifco, who are a, a prison charity in Scotland, James Doherty and, and several other people. We managed to get Fritzie to come over with our team and they entered three Scottish prisons, all with the permission of the governors and they did a compassion prison circle. And that in essence is a circle of however many prisoners, I think it was maybe as low as maybe 25, as high as maybe about 60. And they go in a circle and and they know what they're gonna share, but they're asked if they want to share and take a step forward if, for example, X, Y, or Z has happened to them. So if they've been shouted at as a child, if they were physically beaten, so effectively, almost like an aces score, which as I say, is not necessarily a good thing, but the purpose of this was to show that the other prisoners, because by the time they step into the circle, they're all physically very close. And they realize that they've got a lot more in common than they thought. And they share an awful lot of pain. And the explanation thereafter, so they're not just left at that. There was a, a, an initial three other days with uh, Fritzi. And thereafter, Cisco, this charity, went in weekly to mentor and educate and help uh, these women and men in the Scottish prisons. And for many, it was transformative. It may have just put them on the beginning of a path and a journey. For others, I think their epiphany was huge. And it allowed them to realise about their own pain and not to feel any shame um, and as I say, I, I I was privileged enough to, to, to be part of it, and, and when I wasn't working, but I'd go in and I I'd see a massive difference. Um, but how that's rolled out across all prisons, I don't know. Um, that it, for for many, it might have felt very American, a very you know rah rah and and as a, as a show, but it wasn't really a show. It wasn't just a it wasn't a, a piece of theatre. It was much deeper than that. Once once you go on beyond this epiphany of the circle and yeah I thought I thought it was huge but yeah so that so the prison work and we, we had a conference with Fritzy. she's done films with uh, Jennifer Lopez and Dr Dre but her thing now is it's all about prisons that's what she does she's a prison she's like a, a modern day Elizabeth Fry
1: it's very, it's a very powerful video that actually and if I can find it online I'll I'll put a link oh, to it in the show notes yeah so it's definitely worth watching yeah. but ian we've come to the end of time and conscious of you got you've got an afternoon's work ahead of you thank yeah. you so much for coming on and sharing sharing your story and actually really inspirational and uplifting nice um, contrast to some of the the stories we've we've had, had to tell thank
0: thanks you. To you. thanks to you both and thanks for the the work that you do and providing people with information i've found your podcast very inspiring so thank you
2: great conversation ian many thanks And really good to meet you. Good to meet you both. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: Bye.